Hi, everyone. This is NBC 10 Boston's question and answer series on the war in Ukraine. Please continue to send your questions to ukrainequestions at NBCUNI.com. I'm digital reporter Mary Marcos, and I'm here with Maya Cross and Pablo Calderon of Northeastern University and Oleg Kotsuba of Harvard University. Thank you guys for joining us each week. Thank you. So today I want to start by talking about how Russia cut off gas to Poland and Bulgaria after they refused to pay in rubles. And that, that move came one day after the U.S. and Western allies vowed to send more and, and better military supplies to Ukraine. Germany also just made an about face on their approach to, to what's going on there by agreeing to send anti-aircraft tanks um, to Ukraine. And, you know, I just wanted to get a sense from you guys about what this all means, what, what's going on in the international community right now. The, for a long time, you know, we, we had been talking about why certain uh, certain moves were being made. There were some fighter jets for a while we were talking about, and the U.S. didn't want to sort of deliver them because of over fears of being too escalatory and, and how Putin might perceive that. And, and, you know, seemingly that concern has gone out the window now that they're you know, making, uh, there's just a lot stronger language coming out about all this. And I just wanted to get uh, sort of, I was just hoping you guys could unpack what, what this all means and, and, and whether things are just really escalating in the international sort of space. Uh, Pablo, do you want to start with that? Yeah, thanks. And I, yeah, I think it's very interesting, the developments we've seen over the last few days. And I think to an extent we can talk about an escalation of sorts, but I think really is probably more of a reassessment of, the objectives of, of both sides, in particularly Russia and the West, and, and what they would be able to perceive as a uh, as a good outcome for them. So obviously, Russia, and I think we can accept that Vladimir Putin has simply acknowledged that you know total control of Ukraine and establishing a puppet regime in Ukraine is just not going to happen. So the main objective, the initial main objective of Vladimir Putin, is completely out of the window for now, at least. Right. So I don't think Vladimir Putin can consider a total occupation of Ukraine as a viable objective. So we've seen Russia trying to reassess its options and perhaps go for other secondary outcomes. And in particular, and I think it's pretty clear they've said it as, they've said as much, their objective now is control of eastern Ukraine and southern Ukraine and perhaps sort of establish control across eastern Ukraine over the, the Black Sea and create some sort of land bridge with uh, Russian-backed territories as well in Moldova. And also part of this means creating a little bit more and this also talks about maybe the objective of the Kremlin being some sort of dissolution of the Ukrainian state and division within the Ukrainian state and creating little different republics. And, and I think now the objective for Vladimir Putin has shifted towards creating generalized instability and, and generalized pain and, and discomfort for Europe and particularly for, for Eastern Europe. And that's why we see these cuts of gas supplies, particularly to, to Poland and, and Bulgaria. And on the other hand, I think the West is reassessing its alternatives and its options as well. And he's perhaps sensing somehow paradoxically, perhaps a little bit of weakness, weakness in Russia. And I think and again, I think uh, Joe Biden said as much, President Biden said as much that the objective now was to see a weak in Russia and to really put pressure on Russia to make sure that Russia cannot do this again. And I think the West is starting to get a little bit more emboldened by the failure of, of Vladimir Putin in achieving his main objective. Russia now moving to secondary objectives. And similarly, the West is starting to move up in his in his rhetoric as well and is trying to search for better outcomes right not just to stop what Vladimir Putin and Russia is doing in Ukraine now but perhaps making sure it doesn't happen again 
and really weakening the Vladimir Putin's regime and really weakening Russia's position. And I think both of them are basically reassessing their positions after a few months of conflict, and they're both getting new objectives for the war. Great. Maya, what do you think? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I agree with what Pablo said. I would add to that, you know, a couple of developments that I think that have paved the way for this kind of stronger stance. One is the re-election of Macron, which I think has given the EU just a very clear mandate and a, and a clear path forward to, to act together and combat Russia and have a strong Franco-German um, defense engine behind all of that. The other is the big um, meeting yesterday of around 40 top military leaders um, around the world. This is a clear shift to something where it's not just the West. I mean, I think this has been true from the beginning. It's not just the West that has been condemning Russians, Russia's actions. But this meeting, which is now set to be a monthly meeting, um, really shows that you know there is a concerted sort of institutionalized effort uh, from not only Western countries, but also the Middle East, Africa, and Asia to talk about defense and how to react to Russia for the long term. Um, so this gives uh, the US, Europe, um, everyone really much more of a mandate to kind of speak a bit more strongly, really showing that there is international solidarity against Russia. Um, and this isn't just about you know the West versus Russia or the US versus Russia. Um, and so, yeah, all of this together, I think, shows that, you know, that Russia is perhaps headed towards a serious loss here that, you know, it's going to be increasingly difficult for Putin to paint this as a win, although he will do it and he can to some degree because of his disinformation infrastructure. Um, but it, it is pointing to some weakness. And, and I think, you know, also the fact that there is this um, new potential ambassador of the U.S., to Ukraine is part of this whole package. I mean, it's, it's multiple levels. Um, and just to pick up on, on what you started with as well, with the, um, the, the energy, the gas um, cutoff to Poland and Bulgaria, I think, you know, this, has, this is something where the, the, these two countries in particular have been preparing for this, this possibility um, for some time, and they were already very much planning not to renew their contracts with Russia. So, so the step can be seen as alarming. It's, it's basically Putin saying, hey, we're willing to cut off energy to Europe, which would be really kind of catastrophic if it happened very suddenly. Um, but it's also a bit of a weak step, a weak version of that, because these two countries are prepared for it. I would say that, you know, as the Europeans now prepare for a summit next month to talk about, you know, um, should they include oil and gas in this next round of sanctions, which would be the sixth round, I think this Russian action should push them towards taking that more seriously. Um, because, you know, it's, it is something, it's still a kind of economic weapon that Russia possesses. Um, and it's far better if the Europeans can be the one calling the shots and not um, Russia suddenly saying, hey, tomorrow your gas is going to be cut off. Great, right, Ola? Well, let me start from the, from the end, perhaps, um, kind of building on what Maya has commented on, namely the gas supplies. Um, we need to remember the history of Russia's use of energy as a weapon and in, against Ukraine in particular. Those, those who are familiar with the um, kind of 
with this escalating tension back and forth, we'll remember that there were disputes in the 1990s. Uh, then in 2006, uh, Russia cut off gas supplies to Ukraine in the middle of the winter, basically in December. Um, and Ukraine was struggling to, to deal with that, right? Right after the, uh, uh, the so-called Orange Revolution, right? And the election of the pro-Western uh, president of Ukraine, Viktor Yushchenko. Uh, then again in 2007-2008, right, there were there were reductions of uh, supply of gas to Ukraine by 25% over really over overnight uh, for several days um, as a threat to kind of to cut off gas supplies entirely. Uh, then finally in 2009, 2008-2009, uh, then 2014, as you as you might know, in June uh, when the when the uh, Crimea was already annexed. Uh, and then, um, you know, the kind of the fighting started in the east of Ukraine. Russia cut off its gas supplies to Ukraine entirely. Uh, they were briefly resumed later, but um, essentially Ukraine has stopped relying on Russia, on importing gas directly from Russia, um, you know, and hasn't done so basically since 2015. Uh, although there were certain court decisions that were obligating Ukraine to buy Russian gas, but then, you know, kind of through various arbitration processes that didn't happen. Um, so that shows that uh, Russia is, you know, is uh, extremely open to using energy as as uh, a weapon. Has done so in the past. Um, you know, as as a result of some of those cutoffs in the past, uh, the uh, pressure in the pipeline system also was reduced for Bulgaria, for Poland, for other countries. So that does not come as a surprise to them. Uh, it definitely, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think this kind of step speaks to the fact that this conflict um, is already a world conflict. Whether we want to call it a World War III or not, that's you know something uh, entirely different. But Russia is using now uh, a weapon that it possesses against Western countries or against members of the uh, 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 European Union. Uh, Bulgaria, because of certain um, issues with deliveries from Azerbaijan, is depending currently on Russian gas uh, up to 90%. That's a very significant dependence for, for the country. Uh, however, at the same time, the, uh, uh, the, the actual volume for Gazprom of gas that it delivers to Poland and Bulgaria uh, is very, very small compared to the rest of Europe, especially Germany. So I think that in, in Russia, they saw this as a kind of low risk way to threaten Europe and to kind of, you know, to warn of consequences if they do not agree. Um, Poland is largely uh, gas independent. They were not going to uh, extend their deal with, uh, with Russia at the end of this year. Uh, but what's interesting about Bulgaria is that on the one hand, Bulgaria has very close ties to, to Russia, even though the kind of the current leader of the country is, uh, you know, kind of pro-European, anti-corruption and so on. Uh, and they did try to make a payment uh, to Russia, but the payment was returned. Uh, because of the mechanism that Russia has suggested. So as some of you may know, the uh, kind of the mechanism that Russia is insisting on is that European energy companies open a bank account in rubles in the Gazprom bank, right? It's basically the bank that is owned by Gazprom. And so that, of course, would put the, those countries, you know, in certain violation uh, of the European sanctions, although there is also a way around that. So the question is really kind of how the European Union is going to react right now. And it feels like, this is again, another test for unity, uh, uh, you know, among the members of the European Union. 
And the, one of the paradoxes of this war has been that uh, Putin has achieved all the opposite results from what he seems to have had as his objectives, right? He has unified Ukrainians. He has practically de-Russified Ukraine. Right now, you know, many Russian speakers in Ukraine no longer want to speak Russian. Streets are being renamed. You know, whole towns are becoming like very, very pro-Ukrainian. Uh, in a similar way, uh, you know, the outcome of this attack against the European Union could be that it unifies the European Union further, solidifies its resolve in the struggle against Russia, and kind of, you know, for long-term consequences, because of course we can talk about short-term consequences, but here we are, it's already uh, spring or in, in summer soon, so short-term consequences are not going to be as, as devastating for, for those countries. But the long-term consequences for Russia and Gazprom are going to be devastating because these countries are going to do their best for Russian oil and gas, no matter no matter what how this this current crisis ends. In terms of the um, kind of the um, radical shift in the Western uh, approach to the conflict in Ukraine and the arming of Ukraine with heavy weapons, right, as opposed to what was given Ukraine before, I think this is the outcome on the one hand of uh, the uh, successful resistance of Ukrainians. Uh, for two months, uh, the country has successfully repelled Russian attacks, even though most, if not uh, many, if not most analysts uh, in the West had predicted that Ukraine would fall within hours or days. Uh, we see that it did not happen on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that um, the realization is now setting in that um, you know, the goal that Putin has in Ukraine is not going to be satisfied by his taking part of Ukraine's territory. And so, the, uh, therefore, the only response and the only resolution to the conflict that is possible and is going to be lasting is Putin's defeat in Ukraine. And so we, we have seen that um, uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Austin, uh, together with the, uh, um, uh, foreign, where the Foreign Secretary Blinken, have traveled to Kyiv. They have delivered very strong remarks there, uh, kind of standing together with Ukraine, speaking in one voice, saying that we fight against Russia. Uh, there, there have always all, also been kind of a change in the rhetoric regarding the, uh, uh, you know, the goals of U.S. engagement, namely that now U.S. seeks to weaken Russia and its military capacity to such an extent that it can never do anything similar to what it has done in Ukraine ever again. That's a very strong statement. And I think this is a true watershed moment in how the West perceives the conflict in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. Um, and so I, I think that the meeting of the 40 uh, defense secretary, defense ministries in Germany, uh, the establishment of a special office in Stuttgart under the European command of uh, office of the U.S. troops in in um, in, in in Europe, um, is a very remarkable, truly a remarkable step in the direction of coordinated delivery of heavy, not just defensive but also offensive weapons to Ukraine, and what the goals of such deliveries uh, will be going forward. Great, and you and Maya both kind of just touched on what I wanted to get into next, which is. Maya, you had mentioned that the that the um, U.S. announced a, an ambassador to Ukraine, Bridget Brink, and um, Ola, you just mentioned that Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin were in Kiev earlier this week. And 
in addition to both of those things, American diplomats are going to be returning to Kyiv. And I just wanted to ask you guys what the significance is of this, um, of, of their return there sort of a, in a more permanent uh, way. Maya, would you start with that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it really is telling that these diplomats are headed back there because that one of the early things that happened was that the, the American diplomats left um, Kyiv because of the danger that the impending attack um, was going to present to them. So the fact that the situation on the ground feels safe enough to bring those diplomats back is um, something that really shows Russia's losses, right? Um, in the beginning, there was an anticipation that Kyiv would fall in a matter of days and Zelensky could be um, captured or even worse. And now we see a situation where Zelensky continues to give these very compelling speeches to the international community and the diplomats are returning. Um, the appointment or the sort of like decision to kind of put forward a new U.S. ambassador, she still needs to be confirmed by the Senate, is also significant because there hasn't been a U.S. ambassador uh, to Ukraine since 2019 when um, Trump uh, precipitated this kind of scandal out of out of nowhere, trying to get Zelensky to investigate the Bidens. Um, so in general, we are seeing this kind of difference between the Trump pre presidency and the Biden presidency with Biden really making an effort to repopulate these US embassies around the world, which is important for US foreign policy in general, but especially in Ukraine. So, I mean, I don't think that this ambassador will sort of have a huge bearing on what Russia decides to do. I, I think that um, you know, this is more about support for Ukraine than kind of reacting to Russia. Um, but she is an ambassador who has these on the ground networks and deep experience in the region. And that's important because while we can have these big showcases of major um, U.S. Um, statesmen going into Kyiv and, and showing solidarity, the real work often happens on a day to day basis with these um, experienced ambassadors. Um, so I think she's going to have quite a challenging job there because there are all of these tensions um, still um, in place, of course. Um, but it is overall a, a really good sign on the success of the Ukrainians in, in fighting against the Russias, the success of the um, international community, um, as well as kind of a, a shift into something that looks a bit more normal for diplomatic relations. Great. Right. Olaf, what do you think? Uh, it, it, this, this is really important from the Ukrainian perspective. Uh, U.S. diplomats, by definition, have a lot of uh, influence, a lot of impact in every country where they are, um, not just because they um, you know, are a direct communication channel to, to Washington, to D.C., to the political elites here in, in this country, but also because they have a lot of impact on the, on the politics, on the internal politics in each country, uh, itself. Uh, Bridget Brink is known for uh, working, having work, worked in Georgia in a very high position in the political department and economic department, and she witnessed the kind of transformation of Saakashvili, the president Saakashvili of Georgia, from this very successful democratic leader and reformist into a more authoritarian figure. And so I think, you know, kind of having seen you know, the kind of emergence of a new democratic state and then its slow transformation into something else, uh, I, I think that was a very impactful experience for, for the ambassador, for the future ambassador of Ukraine. 
Uh, however, at the same time, her her uh, candidacy was rejected by Georgia to, to become the ambassador to Georgia. And so at the same time, that experience, I think, is also very important because that shows that there is a certain kind of resistance. Oh, there was a certain resistance among the elites in Georgia who perceived her as a possible threat. Uh, after that, she uh, she was the, uh, the ambassador or is still the current ambassador to Slovakia, which is a very close neighbor to Ukraine. Uh, Slovakia has done a lot to help uh, uh, recently, both with military supplies, as you know, the delivery of the S-300 systems, uh, anti-aircraft uh, missile systems to Ukraine, but also accepting a lot of refugees. And uh, she managed to, uh, to really navigate the complexities of the Slovak politics really well, because there has been a lot of turmoil in the country more recently, uh, especially in, including corruption cases in the government and so on. And so she has come to be known as someone who works very productively, very effectively behind the scenes to achieve the desired outcome for kind of the local elites as well as the international community. And so I think having someone like that in Kyiv is definitely going to be uh, a big advantage for Ukraine uh, and also for the dem democratic and the continuation of democratic reforms in Ukraine. Because as with every war, the real danger for Ukrainian democracy is that, uh, you know, it kills over into kind of a more autocratic state, right? And that's something that the entire world and Ukrainians in particular would like to avoid. Pablo, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, not much to add, really. I, I agree with Oleg Maya said, but I think it also shows a great, and, I, and I, I, to echo what Oleg was saying, I think um, the presence of American diplomacy sends a very strong signal as well to the rest of the world as well. And it's very, very important to the to the rest of the world sending a strong message that the United States is is back in Ukraine, is back in Ukraine. It's a stronger sense of support of Ukraine, and also sends a very strong message to Moscow about the the confidence which with with which now the West really, not just the U.S. but also the U.K. and the rest of the European partners are really talking about the conflict. And it sends it sends it signals strength from the West, which is something I think we all agree has been missing up until very recently. I mean, just. Yesterday, the, the uh, uh, British Minister for the Military Affairs was just saying that, you know, Ukraine could target, uh, you know, uh, supply chains within Russia, and that would be entirely legitimate, and it could do so with British supply weapons, right? So all of this talks to a lot more confidence from the West, a lot more strength, and really, they see this conflict as having some sort of a positive outcome in the generalized weakening of Russia. So I, I see all these developments are very, very positive and very, very timely as well. And with all these developments and with Ukraine pulling out of, of uh, Kyiv and other, other cities and, and really focusing on that eastern region, um, again, getting, getting a lot of questions from people who have been watching this asking if Ukraine is winning the war. I wonder what you guys think about that. Ola, would you start? Sure, I think, I think we're still very far from winning the war. And uh, please, we have to remember that it's not just a Ukrainian fight, right? The Ukrainians are fighting, in essence, for democracy or for kind of the uh, democratic system uh, that Vladimir Putin is attacking, not just in Ukraine, but around the world, especially in Western Europe, United States and elsewhere. So I think we're still very far from winning this war. Uh, so right now, the hot phase is the on the ground, uh, you know, military attacks by Russia on Ukraine. But other forms of attacks are likely to continue, including cyber attacks, including 
uh, sowing division in democratic societies and so on. And so it's really about developing resilience and developing tools in counteracting those kind of attacks. In terms of the, the war in Ukraine and against Ukraine right now, Ukrainians have proven that they are very skilled at, uh, you know, fighting off Russian aggression. Um, they have managed to repel uh, Russians in the north away from the capital, but the attacks in the east and in the south continue. Uh, most recently, uh, what has been unprecedented, I think, and quite unexpected for a lot of residents there, the Odessa region came under under severe shelling and bombardment. And those those who who know the region a little bit will remember that there are you know many many people from from Odessa, which is a very international city, um, who are you know have very close ties with Russia and who very often perceive themselves as closely tied to Russian culture. The city has always been largely Russian speaking. The city has always been, you know, has always had this kind of pro-Russian orientation. And so now this is, of course, being being changed uh, in, because why in the attacks, uh, innocent people are dying, women, children again, um, you know, and so on. And so that's number one. Number two, in the East, uh, because of the concentration of power, Russia is making slow, although minimal gains. Um, and uh, the real question there is going to be whether or not Ukraine is going to have the type of weapons to defeat to, or at least repel <clears throat> attacks. And finally, in Mariupol, uh, which continues to be under siege, the Azovstal uh, steelworks uh, plant, uh, you know, people are still holding out there. There are hundreds of civilians uh, underneath in the bunkers. Two videos have been posted from, from those from underneath there. There are uh, a ton of injured people who don't have any medical supplies. They're running out of water and food. And there are still several hundred uh, Ukrainian soldiers, fighters of, of various battalions uh, who are resisting the, uh, the assaults. And uh, according to the Ukrainian Defense Ministry, uh, Russia, although Vladimir Putin on television said that they were going to just basically starve out those, uh, those fighters, those soldiers, uh, they have made 35 uh, you know, shelling attacks on the uh, on the steelworks, and you have to imagine that that's a huge power plant. It's the size of a city, basically, and so it, which has very extensive bomb shelters and bunkers underneath, and so that continues. And the outcome of that fight is still also unclear. If Ukraine gets the uh, you know the, this heavy uh, weapons that would allow Ukraine to deblock the city and save those people who have been holding out at Azovstal. That will change, I think, the momentum for this fight. Um, if, however, uh, Azovstal falls and, and those people perish, I think on the one hand, it's going to radicalize the Ukrainian uh, attitude towards any kind of negotiations with Russia. On the other hand, it, could, it will weaken the Ukrainian defenses in the south and allow Russia to advance farther uh, north from that area. And so that, that's you know, a really key, uh, key strategic point. Great. Maya, Pablo, do you have anything to add? Um, yeah, I would just add briefly that, I mean, we are still dealing with a nuclear power and a leader, Putin, who has clearly behaved illogically in, in this war so far. So even though we can certainly point to Russian weaknesses, the sanctions making it difficult for the Russian military to regroup and, and to resupply, um, there's a level of unpredictability about this battle. You know, just the other day, veiled threats of the use of nuclear weapons coming from Russian leaders. So 
I mean, I think we have to be kind of still very cautious about what could happen. Um, and it's probably most likely that there will be this kind of long-term uh, conflict in the East and the South. Um, but if the sanctions remain in place, you know, there's a limit to how long that can go on, I think. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully there's there are some lessons learned on the part of the Russian side to not kind of take these rash and and sort of unpredictable moves uh, because it will only be met with strong resistance from Ukrainians and more weaponry from, from Western powers. Yeah, and, and I would just add that, I mean, I agree with the analysis so far, but I mean, I think never has it been more true. What is that famous quote about, you know, winning a war is like winning an earthquake, right? I mean, there is no real winners and never we've been in, the, in a time which that is more true. So. It's very, very hard to identify really outright winners of any of any war. And in the last 20 years have shown something is that it's very, very hard to see who actually wins the war because these things will take years, if not decades, to develop and for us to see actually uh, some sort of end to the conflict and see who ends up really in better standing after all is said and done. So I think we're very, very far away from finding out who's going to, in inverted commas, win the war, who's going to lose the war. But we're certainly seeing a shift and, and, and Oli, I think I was one of one of those analysts or one of those people that thought that Russia was going to win the war outright relatively quickly. And it was going to be a relatively quick invasion, of course, because this was meant to be the strength of the Russian military, right? You're talking about here about land movement to a close neighbor. So this was supposed to be the strength of the Russian military. So I think everybody's been caught by surprise. So everybody's reassessing what their objectives are. And, and I think this is going to keep shifting. It's going to keep sh changing over the next few months. And then we'll have to wait and see which objectives are actually going to be met. And I'm afraid this is going to take really years to find out who actually won the war or who actually came better off or limited the losses more from this conflict. But at the moment, perhaps, I think the shift, we're seeing a shift in, in the conflict and it's perhaps being more in favor of, of Ukraine and the West. And it certainly seems that Russia has made a big mistake, a massive miscalculation, and I don't think is necessarily learning from lessons from the past from within Russia and, and other places as well. Yeah, I think Ukraine has been called uh, the unexpected nation. I don't know if, if you read this by Rory Finan, which I think is very fitting in this in that regard. But also, you know, it's it's the ignorance of various uh, kind of both military and and civilian uh intelligence analysts i think in you know in, in russia and elsewhere is surprising to me because ukraine has been in this war for eight years and has managed successfully to you know to hold the line the front line and manage the conflict and so it was it it, it is perhaps unexpected but it's not surprising to me um, i think the real chance here is that we are not seeing yet um, but the real chance here is that it will act in the end, strengthen the democratic values and Europe as such. Um, and the reason I'm speaking about this is that we are seeing right now that Russia is trying to open uh, another front uh, in Ukraine's southwest, namely the, uh, the, the so-called unrecognized Republic of Transnistria. That's a part of Moldova. Moldova itself is a very small, small country, uh, a region that was annexed by the Soviet Union from Romania. Uh, back in the 20th century, and um, you know that that's um, that's a possibility there. You know that if the, the troops, the Russian troops stationed in Transnistria engage, 
or the, the Transnistrian troops, which are larger in number, engage in this war, that could in the end wipe out that republic and consolidate Moldova and potentially put it on a stronger path towards membership in the European Union. Because that also, as as you as you probably know, you know, one of the strategies is that Russia has been deploying in uh, preventing the former Soviet states from, uh, you know, associating or entering the uh, European Union was by creating this kind of um, simmering or cold conflicts uh, on the territories of those countries. Because one of the prerequisites, supposedly, of membership of the European Union is that you don't have any territorial disputes. Right. And so if you have a Transnistrian Republic unrecognized in Moldova, if you have those two DPR and LPR republics in Ukraine in the east, if you have the uh, uh, North Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia, therefore they believed that they have effectively prevented those countries from entering the EU. But now if that if that next front is really opened and potentially obliterated by Ukrainian forces because the Moldovan army is unfortunately largely non-existent, um, I think that it would honestly consolidate, uh, you know, that ho that whole space as part of the European democratic, you know, liberal, et cetera, realm. Okay, great. And, and I know we're about out of time right now, but I just want to ask you guys one last question about a piece of legislation that's pending in Massachusetts right now that would, uh, it would establish a special commission to investigate the threat uh, posed by nuclear weapons to the state. Uh, now, the legislature has a week to act on this, and, and I wanted to know what you guys think about how imperative it is that they do. Um, how real is the threat uh, to Massachusetts, and, and is, a, is a commission like this necessary? Maya, would you start with that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's very little threat to Massachusetts at the moment. Um, it's you know, if if Massachusetts were truly under uh, nuclear threat, then we would be talking about uh, the potential for a global nuclear war, which is, um, you know, a kind of doomsday scenario that none of us want to even contemplate. But of course, you know, it's it's unlikely still at this moment. Uh, at the same time, though, I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, the important history of community groups and and social movements in ensuring that the nuclear weapons taboo um, is sustained. So, I mean, we could go back to the peace movements of the 19th and 20th centuries, but actually even before nuclear weapons existed, there was an anti-nuclear movement. And this was very much at the grassroots, like um, this, this initiative here in Massachusetts. Um, and, it, and it's been important because at first, you know, leaders weren't necessarily saying that nuclear weapons were categorically different than other weapons. They thought, you know, it's part of this kind of growth in technology for the battlefield. And why not just consider these just stronger weapons? So a big reason why the nuclear weapons taboo was created in the first place, why it emerged and sustained was because of regular citizens in an anti-nuclear movement, including the women's peace movement, pushing for this. So, you know, especially now, I think it's important not to be complacent and, you know, it's important to keep this on everyone's radar and to to reach towards uh, nuclear disarmament across the world. And these kinds of things are often quite effective when you know you have awareness at the community level and people willing to get involved as activists against uh, nuclear weapons great pablo I'll let you go ahead if i could just add really quickly um so there is a report that was submitted as part of that effort 
Uh, and I think uh, I agree that you know it's important to be aware of the possibility of nuclear threats. But I think the report misidentifies the targets or possible targets in Massachusetts. Uh, so kind of the report says that the possible targets include development facilities, labs, and so on. We know that you know kind of nuclear weapons usually target uh, centers of political power, right? They're not. The idea here is not to strike. Uh, you know, various development facilities, because for that, you don't need a nuclear bomb. You could you just, you know, shell them with regular rockets and that would destroy the facility. Uh, but the kind of the real effect here is to overwhelm the enemy, to kind of break the political regime and so on. And that, by definition, is impossible in the United States. Even if a part of the political elite is taking out, you know, the country is not going to bow to any kind of Russian pressure. Number one. Number two, I agree that the efforts for uh, denuclearization of the world is extremely important. Ukraine so far has done the biggest contribution, has made the, big, the biggest contribution to that effort, having uh, given up the third largest in the world nuclear stockpile. Uh, I hope Russia is next, you know, and hopefully Russia will be denuclearized as one of the effects of this war. And hopefully United States and other countries will follow. We really don't need, as we see from this war, uh, a war as such is destructive enough just using the conventional weapons. They are extremely powerful already. They destroy human lives, they destroy infrastructure, homes, you know, kill thousands and thousands of people. We don't need any more powerful weapons to engage in these wars. And of course, we shouldn't be at war with each other to begin with, right? So I think that uh, the initiative itself, you know, as a kind of uh, its gesture or its momentum, uh, you know, is very good and important. It's important to talk about these issues, but the kind of the, the targets that it identifies, I think it's, uh, you know, it's slightly misplaced. Yeah, and, and I'll just say, like, uh, you know, I, I hope the, the possibility of this happening in Boston is very, very low, because if it is not here in London, it's definitely going to be much higher. So I'm really hoping uh, and, but I agree, these this efforts at the, at, the, at the local level, social level are very, very important. Uh, and the message remains the same. And I think if anything has come from this particular conflict is that we have seen a broad movement and broad support from all corners of society, from all corners of the world, pretty much against the aggression of, of Russia and Ukraine. And we have really seen social movements and we have seen people come together and we have seen support from all different aspects, including the sporting world, for instance. And all these different initiatives that I think are very, very important and speak about how people are really making a stance against the aggression of, of, of Russia and Ukraine. And hopefully this will lead to some positive developments once the conflict is over. Right, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much. I know we went a few minutes over. I appreciate your time. And I know everyone who's watching appreciates your perspectives on these important issues. And I look forward to talking to you guys next week. Thank you. Thank you.